The Anatomy of Story, episode 39, I'm in chapter 6, this will be uh, part 6K. Uh, uh, it's a Wonderful Life, one of the greatest examples of connecting story with world. This advanced social fantasy is designed to allow the audience to see and compare in great detail two distinct versions of an entire town. <clears throat> this small town is a miniature of America, and the two versions are based on two different sets of values, both of which are central to American life. The arena is Bedford Falls, a bustling little town of two-story buildings where someone can wave hello from the second floor to a friend on the street below. The story uses the holiday of Christmas as one of its foundations, although it really tracks the philosophy of Easter by using the hero's death and rebirth for its basic structure. Weakness and Need Night Sky Bedford Falls from Above The story starts with an omniscient third-person narrator, an angel, and later is carried by an actual character, the angel Clarence. Clarence has a weakness. He doesn't have his wings. Helping George is how he will fulfill his need. George's weakness is that his despair has led him to the point of suicide. This setup is designed to allow the audience to review many years of George's life very quickly and eventually to place the two versions of the town side by side. The subworld of these two weaknesses, Clarence's and George's, is a God's eye view of the arena, which is the town, and the night sky, which is a physical manifestation of the religious elements of the story. Desire George's warm house growing up and the deserted house where he and Mary make a wish. After high school, George lives at home in a buzzing household with his father, mother, brother, and maid, Annie. His father is a benevolent man, and there is much love between him and George, but George is bursting to leave this confining small town. George tells his father his goal. You know what I've always talked about? Build things? Design new buildings? Plan modern cities? This scene places the visual subworld and the story structure step in conflict. Usually the subworld matches the step. The warm house shows what a loving family can be like, but George's intense desire to leave suggests the oppression of the small town world, especially one controlled by a tyrant. George again expresses his desire when he and Mary walk home after falling into the pool at a dance. They spot an old deserted house on the hill, the terrifying house, which for George is a symbol of negative small-town life. He throws a rock at it and tells Mary, I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world, and then I'm going to build things. Of course, he ends up living in that house, which his wife tries to make cozy and warm, but to his mind, the house is haunted and remains his tomb. Opponent, Potter's Bank and Office. Henry Potter is the richest and meanest man in the county. When Clarence first sees him riding in his elaborate horse-drawn carriage, he asks, Who's that king? Potter is the enemy of George in the building and loan because they are all that kept Potter from owning everything and everyone in town. Potter's lair is his bank from which he controls the town. Apparent Defeat Bridge in Bedford Falls George's apparent defeat occurs when he faces the shame of bankruptcy due to Uncle Billy's losing $8,000. George crosses to the middle of the bridge under a heavy snowfall and a hard wind. At this narrow place of passage, George decides to end his life. Visit to Death 
opponent's dystopian town of Pottersville. The angel Clarence shows George what the town would be like if he had never lived and was unable to check Potter's influence. Potter's value, Potter values business, money, power, and keeping the common man down. So begins George's long journey through the deadly subworld of Pottersville, a perfect representation of Potter's values. The detailing of this subworld, accomplished in the writing, is superb, and the whole sequence is done while George is on the run. Main Street is a string of bars, nightclubs, liquor stores, and pool halls, and dissonant jazz is playing over the scene. Some of us actually like this vision. As described in the screenplay, where before it was quiet, orderly, small town, it has now become in nature like a frontier village. Unlike Bedford Falls, Potter's version of a town has no community. Nobody recognizes George, and nobody knows one another. Even more important, all the minor characters, who have been defined in great detail up to this point, are shown as having fulfilled their worst potential. The contrast with their earlier selves is startling, but believable. That really could be Ernie the cab driver, living a dark version of his life. That really could be Mr. Gower, the druggist, who's now a bone. That really could be George's mother, turned nasty, running a boarding house. The only miss is Donna Reed as a spinster. This suggests that all people are a range of possibilities and that whether they are at their best or at their worst depends on the world they live in and the values they live by. George ends uh, his trip to Pottersville and his long visit to death with a visit to the graveyard on a dark snowy night. Here he sees his brother's grave and then narrowly escapes shots fired by a cop. This returns him, full circle, to the bridge, the transition point where he was about to commit suicide. Freedom. The hero's utopian town of Bedford Falls. When George discovers that he is alive, he experiences the intense liberation that comes from seeing the value of his own life, and even more, what he has been able to achieve as a human being. This is a profound self-revelation for any person. In a moment of intense but inspiring irony, he runs joyless, joyously down the main street of the town that only hours before had driven him almost to suicide. It is the same town, but the simple tree-lined street with its family businesses has become a wonder wonderland. George now experiences this one once boring town as a utopia because it is a community that cares about. It is a community that cares. The big old drafty house, once haunting and confining, has become warm because the family loves him, is there, and it is soon filled with all the minor characters whose lives he improved and who are now happy to return the favor. It's a Wonderful Life shows a very close match between story and visual world. Unlike the big sensational worlds and fantasies like the Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potter series, this film uses visual techniques in the everyday setting of a suburban suburban, middle-class, mid-century American world. Parenthetical. Big is a more recent example of this. Close parenthetical. It's a Wonderful Life is excellent social fantasy on the level of Twain and Dickens, and it borrows, borrows from them both. Borrowing from other storytellers is a technique that you can use if you use it playfully. Keep the references light. People who get them will enjoy them. Those who don't will still appreciate the story's added texture. In It's a Wonderful Life, the angel who saves George is named Clarence, which is the name of the ally in Twain's connect, 
Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Clarence is reading The Adventures of Tom Sawyer when he is called to action. And, of course, the story is an American version of Dickens' A Christmas Carol with a heavy dose of David Copperfield thrown in. Notice that you can borrow all the way up to the designing principle of another story, but if you do, you must change it enough to make it unique. Your audience will appreciate, even on a subliminal level, the artistry of making that change. It's a Wonderful Life is not about crotchety old American who visits Christmas past, present, and future in New York. It's about a middle-class American whose whole life is laid out in detail and who then sees an alternative version of what his hometown would be like had he not lived. That is a wonderful change to make in the designing principle of A Christmas Carol. You may be surprised to learn that audiences didn't take to this film when it first came out. Though It's a Wonderful Life is very sentimental, it may have been too dark a social satire for the mass audience of its day. But over time, the excellence of the film, especially in connecting character to story world, has won over the crowd. All right, now let's look at Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard is a cutting satire about a modern kingdom whose royalty are movie stars. These kings and queens live and die by selling beauty. Sunset Boulevard appeals especially to people who know story, not only because its main character is a modern-day storyteller, a screenwriter, but also because its visual world is laden with all kinds of story forms and story references. These are just a few of the story world techniques in this brilliant script. Their overall world is Hollywood, which the writer set up as a kingdom with a court of royalty and a rabble of hardworking peasants. But using a writer as a voiceover storyteller, the writers are able to make all kinds of literary connections to the world. Problem, Hollywood apartment. Screenwriter Joe Gillis is out of work and broke, and he lives in a rundown apartment. He is also a Hollywood factory writer, cranking out two stories a week. His problem gets worse when two men come to his apartment to repossess his car. Weakness and need. Opponent. Rundown mansion and pool. When he first sees the rundown mansion, the terrifying house of Norman Desmond, Joe thinks this secret subworld has just saved him. He can hide his car there, rewrite Norma's Awful script to make some good money, but he has just entered the opponent's subworld from which he will never escape. It holds him because it feeds his great weakness, which is his hunger for money. Here's how Joe, the screenwriter, describes the world. It was a great big white elephant of a place, the kind crazy movie people built in the crazy 20s. A neglected house gets an unhappy look. This one had it, had it in spades. It was like that old woman in Great Expectations, that Miss... Havisham and her riding wedding dress and her torn veil taken out on the world because she's been given the go-by. As he retreats to the guest house, Joe makes his way past the overgrown vines and thorns just like the prince in Sleeping Beauty. Out his window he sees the empty swimming pool crawling with rats. The images of death and sleep in this world are everywhere. Opponent. Apparent defeat. House revitalized. Joe captured at the pool. This fairy tale world, with its haunted house, its thorns, and its sleeping beauty, is also the home of a vampire. As Joe becomes more deeply ensnared in the trap of easy living, Norm and the house are revitalized. The pool is now clean and filled, and when Joe emerges from a swim, and when Joe emerges from a swim, Norma, flushed with new blood, dries off her bought young man with a towel, as if he were her baby. Battle, death, shooting at the pool. 
in a short, one-sided battle, Norma, Norma shoots Joe when he tries to walk out, out on her. He falls into the swimming pool, and this time the vampire has left him dead. Opponent slavery. Norma on the staircase, descending into madness. With such a great human opponent, Sunset Boulevard does not end with the death of the hero. The opponent literally descends into madness. Her ability to distinguish fantasy from reality now gone. She is both her character, down below they're waiting for the princess, and an actress performing in another Hollywood movie. As the newsreel cameras roll, Norma walks down the grand staircase of the palace into a deep sleep from which no prince will awaken her.